Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his garments as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The resurrection of Jesus was an incredible demonstration of power that so scared the guards, the armed guards, stationed at the tomb, that they passed out from fear. Indeed, great power and great fear characterized the resurrection of our Lord. And great power and great fear should characterize the church of our resurrected Lord. It did in the book of Acts. Continuing our study in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each, as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who is also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In verse 33 of that passage, Luke notes that the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of Jesus with great power. Now you may recall that they had prayed for confidence to speak boldly after their arrest and that God shook the place where they prayed to assure them that he would continue confirming their message with signs and miracles. That gave them great confidence and boldness and the power of God was reflected in their preaching. The powerful witness, however, came from more than miracles and powerful preaching. Verse 33 must not be read in isolation from verses 32 and 34. For only when they are read together do we discover the primary thought of the verses. Only then do we note that the focus of the passage is the unity and love that was in the Jerusalem church. Verse 32 says the believers were of one heart and soul. 
And verse 34 notes that there was not a needy person among them. They had become a unified body that cared for every part, and that gave added power to the apostles' witness. Being of one heart and soul, they had become one. They thought alike. They felt alike. They functioned as one. Now, that doesn't mean they all looked alike or acted alike. Individually, they were all different, like different parts of a body. They had different functions, and they had each been given differing gifts enable them to do what God had placed them in the body to do. But together, they had become one. As believers, they were bound together by a resurrected Lord. In Him, they had become one body, one family. And they cared about each other deeply. In fact, they were so close that they viewed their possessions as common Property. Now, this wasn't communism or even socialism where someone takes away the right of private ownership and says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. This is real love, true fellowship that says, what's mine is yours, I'll share it. Where personal rights are voluntarily relinquished because of someone else's need. And that's what was happening here. They really cared. They loved. They had a common bond in Christ that made them of one heart and soul. And it was his heart and soul they shared. He was living through them. And that's what made for a powerful witness to the resurrection. People could see Christ at work in the church. They could see him living through his people. Lives were being changed into the image of Christ. Self-centered people were becoming like the one they believed in, the one who gave up everything, even his life for them. They were giving themselves and their possessions to each other. They were selling houses and land and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet for distribution within the body. And as a result, Luke notes, abundant grace was upon them all. Now this can be taken a couple of ways. It can refer to the grace of God or to the favor of the people. It can mean that God was able to bless them because of their unity and practical love for one another, or that they had favor with people of the community because of their love and unity. Actually, it could mean both, that God blessed them and people liked what they saw taking place in the church. God blessed them with the resources needed, and people noted how they shared those resources. There wasn't a needy person among them. Now that impressed a world full of needy people. It got their attention. It made them listen. It gave validity to the message the apostles were proclaiming. Enable them to witness powerfully to the resurrection of Jesus 
his life could be seen in the life of the church. The way he gave himself for others had become the model for giving in the church. When a need arose, there was always someone who would make arrangements to meet it. Those with land or houses would sell a piece of property and use the proceeds to meet the need. Now, again, this wasn't socialism or even communal living. It doesn't mean everyone in the church repudiated private ownership. It just means they were good stewards of what they had. If someone had more than they needed, they would sell it off so someone else could have what they needed. And that is what Barnabas did. A man named Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, a man called the son of encouragement, Barnabas, by the apostles, sold a tract of land and laid the money at the apostles' feet. Now things like that make a powerful witness. And people noticed But, as expected, Satan does not remain idle when good things happen in the church. It's easy for him to get some to begin wondering how they might benefit personally from what the resurrected Christ is doing through his body. The open sharing of resources will cause some to think they can take advantage of the generosity of the church. And others will get involved in what the church is doing just to make themselves look good. We can't be certain what motivated the couple we meet next. But it soon became necessary for the church to be reminded that the power of the resurrected Lord is something to be feared. Let's move into the fifth chapter. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to bring back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Why have you not lied to men, but to God? And as he heard these words... Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And She said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, 
and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now this account really disturbs some people. And not just when it is read on Easter Sunday morning. One commentator said that this account was frankly repulsive. You know, Peter looks like a tyrant, so harsh and judgmental. But before we jump to conclusions, let's examine this account carefully. Apparently, Barnabas' sale prompted another sale. Ananias, his name means Jehovah has graciously given, and Sapphira, beautiful, a couple in the church, decided to follow his example. Now, we're not sure why. Maybe they were simply inspired by his generosity. Or they may have been jealous of the attention Barnabas was receiving. Sad to say, but the rest of the story supports the second conclusion. But for whatever reason, they sold a piece of property like Barnabas, but they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. Now, there was nothing wrong with that. Peter made it very clear that they were under no compulsion to sell their land or to give any of the proceeds to the church. They sinned grievously, however, in making it appear they had given all to the church. And that was the problem. They held back some for themselves, but wanted everyone to think they had done what Barnabas had done, given it all. And they may have intended to give it all originally, but it's easy for money in hand to overrule our best intentions. Apparently, Satan planted a seed in his heart and Ananias watered it. He thought no one would know or care. They'd just be happy to get the money. Besides, what difference would it make? Big difference. They were lying. They were trying to deceive the church. And when Peter confronted Ananias with the lie and pointed out that he had, in fact, lied to God, Ananias dropped dead. How? Why? We don't know. It doesn't say. It may have been a heart attack. It may have been the hand of God. Apparently, those who viewed it saw it as a judgment from God. He was immediately taken out and buried. They didn't even notify the next of kin. 
Three hours later, Sapphira showed up. She'd probably been out shopping, spending her proceeds from the sale. Peter asked her if they sold the piece of property for the said price, and she said yes. She maintained the lie. Then, after being told that Peter knew the truth and that Ananias was dead, she too fell dead. Peter said she would. Maybe he caused it. We don't know. But one thing for sure, they reap the consequences of putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. They didn't think he would know, or at least he wouldn't make it known to the church. But they found out that you don't mess with the Spirit of God. You don't try to pull one over on the resurrected Christ. The rest of the church got the message, too, because of this great fear came upon the whole church. Now, Now, this wasn't a paralyzing fear, but a healthy respect, renewed reverence for the things of God. No one else dared to appear to be something they weren't. Hypocrisy was gone. No more attempts at one-upmanship. No one allowed petty jealousies to break down the unity of the spirit. No game playing, no power struggles. The fear of God kept them focused and working together for his glory. Renewed respect for the resurrected Christ restored a powerful witness in the church. And that is definitely needed today. Now I admit, this was harsh. But God apparently felt it was necessary in the formative days of the church. It was imperative that his thoughts on hypocrisy and deception and rivalry in the church be seen by all. And it was. It brought fear upon the church. Now, thankfully, the statement has been made. And he does not find it necessary to deal with problems in the church that swiftly today. Thankfully, he gives us more time for repentance. He's more patient with us. But we better not be lulled into thinking his attitude has changed. He still feels the same way about hypocrisy and deception and rivalry in the church. And he still deals with it. If not now, later. It won't be ignored. He has made that perfectly clear. So we better maintain 
healthy respect for our risen Lord and his continuing presence in the church. We better not try to appear to be something we're not. We are not here to outdo one another or to look good, to impress people. We are here to honestly be what Christ called us to be, his body, with one heart and soul. His heart and soul. And to do that, we bow before the risen Christ in fear, in deep respect of his awesome power, and we surrender our all to him. But before we sing it, I want to share something with you. Donald Barnhouse, pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for over 30 years, would not let his congregation sing the third stanza of the hymn at Calvary. It says, Now I give to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Dr. Barnhouse wouldn't let them sing it because if God acted the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, he said you would have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. Now, we don't have a basement, and I won't go that far. But if we say we have surrendered all, we better mean it.